opportunity and endurance. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Matt Kaplan. The big news came from the Red Planet last week. The Mars Exploration Rover team announced that Opportunity had reached Endurance Crater. You'll hear part of the Jet Propulsion Lab press conference, followed by exclusive comments from planetary scientist Phil Christensen. He's responsible for the vital mini-test instruments on both rovers. Bruce Betts is watching comets and giving away another T-shirt on What's Up. And we'll get underway right now as Emily answers another of your great questions. I'll be right back. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, A story about Voyager 1 made me wonder, how is the exact position of a spacecraft in space calculated? The positions of functioning spacecraft can be calculated by spacecraft navigators using information from the deep space network of radio antennas. To find the Voyagers, the tracking antennas have to be precisely pointed toward a signal broadcast by the spacecraft. The tracking antennas, measuring 30 to 70 meters across, are moved back and forth across the expected direction to Voyager until the strength of the radio signal from the spacecraft is at a maximum. This process defines the direction in the sky where the spacecraft is, or at least where it was when the signal left the spacecraft. The direction is half the problem. The other half is distance. Figuring out the distance to the spacecraft involves something called ranging. A series of very short radio signals is transmitted from the ground, received by the spacecraft, and transmitted back to Earth. The time it takes for the signal to make this two-way trip is called the delay time, and can be measured by spaceship navigators to an accuracy of billionths of a second. Multiplying the delay time by the speed of light and dividing by two gives you the distance to the spacecraft. This may sound relatively simple, but there are a lot of other factors that can make it tough to predict the exact location of the spacecraft. To find out more, stay tuned to Planetary Radio. Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity's six-week sojourn across the Meridiani Planum has brought it to what may prove to be the most exciting place we've ever been on Mars. Endurance Crater is much bigger than Eagle Crater, where the probe touched down. The 430-foot-wide bowl is up to 66 feet deep, depending on where you stand around its edge. And it's chock-full of wonderful, and at least so far, mysterious geology. Principal investigator Steve Squires and some of his colleagues sat down for a press briefing on Thursday, August 6, and they brought along some spectacular images. You can see the pictures and read an in-depth article about what Steve and others had to say at the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org. This being radio, we thought you might like to listen in. Later on today's show, we'll be joined by planetary scientist Phil Christensen of Arizona State University for some analysis. First, though, here's Endurance tour guide Steve Squires, who is obviously pretty thrilled by a panoramic view of Opportunity's new home. The crater is more than 100 meters in diameter. It's over 10 meters deep. How deep uh, it is sort of depends on where you measure it from. The best thing of all, from a science perspective, is when you go up to the, close to the rim of this crater, we see enormous outcrops, much bigger than anything that we've seen before, of layered rock. These rocks, we believe, lie lower than the rocks that we saw at Eagle Crater. They preserve a record of what came before the events 
that took place at Eagle Crater. If you look along the very top of these cliffs, and they are cliffs, you'll see busted up rock, rubble. This is the ejecta that was thrown out of the impact, and it's busted up, it's comminuted, it's broken, but below it is intact rock, and that intact rock is, is the stuff that contains the record that we hope to be able to read. If you look within the crater, you see a lot of old familiar things, too. The, uh, the hematite-bearing spherules, the blueberries, as we called them, are all over the ground along the upper reaches of the crater. But when you get deeper down in the crater, what we're seeing is mostly sand, sand with a composition like that of basalt, which is what lies underneath the blueberries, the hematite that we've been driving across. Some of the rocks on the wall of the crater are sort of tilted and flat. They sort of look like paving stones. There's a lot for us to figure out here, but the most appealing, the most attractive, the most scientifically important part of all is what you're seeing right here, and it's this lovely exposure of bedrock that is going to tell us much about what happened in Meridiani Planum before, uh, the, before the rocks that were, that were deposited at Eagle Crater were laid down. Now, I want to give you a sense of scale and what we're dealing with here, because this is fundamentally different from anything that we have seen before. And again, I want to take you back to Eagle Crater. Okay, remember when we landed. We landed, we looked out, we looked across a crater, and we saw a wall of, of, of bedrock. And we thought, this is great, big outcrop of bedrock. And we, when we first saw it, we called it, we nicknamed it the Great Wall, because it looked like this massive wall of bedrock. But then we began to realize the true scale of what we were dealing with. And the next image, which is also from long ago, shows the real scale of our rover and this tiny little one-foot-high outcrop that we had at Eagle Crater. Now, that one foot of rock had a marvelous story to tell us, but it was a tiny amount of rock. This is a big hole in the ground. Okay? Now, what that means, it's, it's, it's good news and bad news. It's good news in the sense that it exposes a lot of rock. This is meters of rock, and that means lots of history. But it's bad news in the sense that this is a dangerous place. This is a dangerous place. At Eagle Crater, we could rove with impunity over whatever there was. I mean, we could drive over anything in our path. Here, there are cliffs that the rover could fall off and die if we're not careful. So we are going to proceed cautiously. We are going to proceed slowly. We're going to proceed very, very methodically here. We're going to start by doing a traverse all the way around the crater, 360 degrees probably. And we're going to shoot it from different angles with pan cam, with mini tests. We're going to do everything we can with all of our remote sensing instruments, the ones that look off into the distance, to characterize this crater in detail. And then what we hope to do, what we hope to do, is find places along the rim of the crater where we may actually have safe access. We're not going to be plunging over any cliffs here. We want to find safe access, traversable access, to the rocks that form the outcrop. So what's going to happen is the rover planners are going to put an enormous amount of effort and energy over the weeks ahead as we're traversing around the, the outside of this crater, assessing the safety of traversing a slope like that. And then when the time comes, when all of that safety assessment has been done, we're going to have to make some decisions about what we're going to do with this vehicle. Now, if we go in and we try to sample that rock, it's going to have an enormous scientific potential, but it may have some risk as well. And if the decision, as we balance the risk against the benefit, it's a decision that's not made and won't be made for a while yet, if the decision is to go in, then we're going to have some other things to do first. We went blasting across the plains from Eagle to Endurance very quickly, sh shooting by all sorts of good stuff along the way. We were eager to see what Endurance looked like, but we're not done with science out on the plains yet. And so if we decide 
after weighing the risks and the benefits, to try dipping our toes into the upper reaches of Endurance Crater with the rover, we will almost certainly do some more science out on the plains yet. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's, there's the wind ripples that we saw out there. There's the fractures that we saw out there, the dimples that we saw out there. There's the heat shield. The heat shield hit the ground not very far from where we are right now, so there's much science to be done. Planetary Radio will be back with much more from Mars in less than a minute. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. We're a long way from understanding this. You know, we're, it, it's like, it, this is like a, the mission started over again. Okay, it really is like the mission has started over again. Think back to when we were at Eagle Crater. We're looking off in the distance. There's something cool. We don't know what it is. Let's go there. Well, here we are again. Give us a few weeks. Mars Exploration Rover Principal Investigator Steve Squires wrapping up his comments about Endurance Crater, the big hole on Mars that has just been reached by Rover Opportunity. To learn more about this new site, we called up planetary scientist Phil Christensen of Arizona State University. One of Phil's specialties is learning about the makeup of geologic formations through a technique called thermal emission spectrometry, or TES, TESS. His instruments on board the spacecraft orbiting Mars allowed us to pick touchdown locations for spirit and opportunity that offered hints of past water. Since then, miniature thermal emission spectrometers, or mini-tests, on the rovers have helped guide them to the most promising rocks and formations. Phil, it has been almost exactly a year since we last talked. Uh, you didn't have any rovers on the planet uh, at that point, and uh, now not only do you have rovers, but very, very successful ones. Quite a lot has happened in the last year. It certainly has. Yeah, a year ago we were hopefully looking forward to maybe getting one rover down, and now we have two that are can easily say they've greatly exceeded our wildest dreams. And continue to, but this incredible panorama that uh, came from the PanCam appropriately of Endurance uh, Crater, the the goal that uh, Opportunity had just reached earlier last week. Yeah, I have seen it, and we've, we've been looking hard at it. Uh, it as you say, it's, it's spectacular. And what makes it so exciting is uh, the rocks that we can see, the layers in those rocks, the hints of you know dark toned rocks, trying to figure out what those rocks are made out of, and then of course trying to figure out what process, what process deposited them. The site that we're on has every indication of a lake, and the question is, are those are those lake sediments that we're looking at in those beautiful cliffs? Steve Squires made a point of saying that uh, as we uh, explore this this much larger crater, uh, pretty much an order of magnitude bigger than Eagle Crater, where uh, Opportunity got its start, that 
opportunity is going to circumnavigate the crater and use all of its sort of long-distance instruments, and he made a point of including, of course, the mini-tests. I guess I should have figured, of course, you've seen the photo because you are probably doing that uh, process where you take the images from mini-tests and uh, uh, line them up with the photographic images. That's correct. Um, we've been, ever since we pulled up to the rim, we've been uh, acquiring mini-test data, and uh, we've begun to make exactly what you say, the overlays of the min- mineralogy that we're deriving from mini-tests on those, on those panoramic images. Uh, we've been working in a couple of modes. One is sort of our low-resolution mode, where we try to map the entire crater, and then we've gone back and focused some very high-resolution stairs at a few key points in the crater wall, particularly these places where we see nearly vertical cliffs uh, with exposed rock. We're just starting to get some hints from the mini-tests of the composition of those rocks. Uh, particularly, we're, uh, we're fascinated with uh, some of these dark rocks that look like they have very fine layering in them. It, it's still preliminary. The mini-test data are complicated to, to unravel, but there's hints in those uh, mini-test data that, that we're looking at basalt, uh, the volcanic rock that we see all over Meridiani Planum, that maybe those, those vertical cliffs are made up of basalt. And now the question would be, how did they get there? Tell us a little bit about uh, basalt formations like this. Well, normally it, it, the basalt started off life as a, as a volcanic rock. Looking at those uh, pictures, however, the layering is so fine, you know, such small-scale uh, layers, that doesn't look like lava flows or volcanic eruptions. One possibility is that we're looking at ash deposits, but typically ash deposits, while they come from the same source uh, magma, liquid rock, they, they don't have the same minerals in them that a basaltic rock would because the basalt rock cools quite slowly and the ash basically forms a glass. So what Minitas is saying is it's, it doesn't look like a glass. It looks more like a, like a basaltic rock. One possibility is that there were originally lavas erupted on the surface. The wind or maybe even water eroded that, broke the rock up, and transported that material as grains of sand or, or cobbles into this, uh, into this ancient lake and maybe these, these sands, uh, basaltic sands, were deposited in a lake. They may have been just deposited as winds. So my working hypothesis at the moment is that uh, these might be basaltic sandstones that were made of ground-up basalt that was transported and redeposited. Does it tell you anything that, uh, as we also heard Steve Squire say, the uh, floor of this crater is apparently littered with more of those blueberries? It's uh, remarkable. Um, with many tests, it looks as though there's one of the slopes uh, from where we first uh, pulled up to the rim. If you look around to the right, a slope leading down into the floor is, is just covered with blueberries. The signature we see mm. from many tests is just virtually nothing but hematite that makes up those blueberries. Other places on the, on the walls leading down in, and particularly on the floor, don't have nearly as many blueberries. So... I think one, of, one interpretation is that the, that the blueberries are coming from up above, up on the plains, and the winds are blowing them down into the crater. That's important because another possibility would be that the blueberries are weathering out of the rock that we see in the cliffs of this crater. Mm. And if that was the case, one might expect to see blueberries everywhere and maybe even a lot more blueberries on the floor of the crater. So I think these are some of the questions we're going to try to puzzle out. Is the blueberries coming from the plains and blown in, or are the rocks that we see, are they also full of blueberries? 
Would you agree with Steve that we're almost uh, starting over here, that this terrain, this crater is uh, so very different from Eagle Crater that uh, it's really almost starting from zero? Yeah, I would. And uh, as you said, Eagle Crater was very small. We saw one little rock layer, which as exciting as it was, it was only a few feet thick. Now we're looking at a much thicker stack of rocks, and it's possible that that layer of rock we spent so much time at at Eagle is just the very upmost, uppermost layer in the exposed rocks we see. So we've, you know, we've investigated this, this uppermost layer. Now we have all these other layers beneath it, and, and that's exactly right. We're, we're really starting over. The, the type of questions you can ask are, were all these rocks deposited in water, or was there episodes of, of wind that, that deposited sediments? Uh, are they ash? Are they lava? Are they you know, sedimentary rocks? Uh, do we find hematite all the way through? If, if all of this was deposited in a lake, how deep was the lake? How long did the lake survive on the, on, on the surface? So we really can ask uh, just a tremendously larger set of questions with so much more rock to look at. Are you one of those who is uh, hoping that a balance can be found between uh, science and safety and uh, get the rover over to, uh, well, one of the areas that we've heard about is the Burns Cliff I don't know if that one is going to be easily reachable, but uh, to one of these rocky outcroppings you've been talking about? Absolutely. I, I think it's too early to talk about are we going to go into the crater and, and never come out again. Um, but I think there's a lot of places we can explore around the rim that have a lot of rock. I'm a firm believer that looking at the rocks is, is really what we're here to do and being able to see the rocks in place, you know, in the places they were formed, is really crucial. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can find ways to explore those. Maybe, as you say, not getting all the way to Burns Cliff, which is even for a human might be a little tricky to get to, but uh, certainly uh, exploring some of these rock outcrops. I hate to give uh, Spirit on the other side of Mars short shrift because it has uh, been making accomplishments of its own, uh, one of them just being uh, the fact that it's been able to negotiate the much more difficult terrain. And at the press conference, uh, the report from Spirit uh, came apparently from one of your students. Yeah, I did. Uh, Amy Knudsen is one of, my, one of my students. She's getting a Ph.D. at ASU, fantastic woman, is doing a wonderful job. And she's one of five students I've got who have actually been making tremendous contributions to this mission. They've been living in Pasadena, you know, working 18-hour days, really making some, some important discoveries. And it was, it was great to see Amy uh, get an opportunity to, to talk to the world and, and tell us some of the things that she's been, uh, she's been working on. And what she told us about, of course, is that uh, Spirit continues to progress toward those hills, the Columbia Hills. They're now, I guess by now, they're less than two kilometers away. What role is uh, the mini-test going to play on uh, Spirit, or continue to play, as, uh, as we reach this new destination? One of the things we're doing is we, as we traverse along, we're collecting routine observations with mini-tests and with PanCam and the other instruments, not so much in a you know, day-to-day decision-making, but imagine... A geologist on a field traverse on the Earth, you, you hike across the terrain and you make notes and you collect rocks and you put them in your backpack and eventually you go back and you analyze them. So what we're hoping is with the mini-test data and the pan-cam data, we'll have a treasure trove of information that we can go back and look and do systematic uh, studies of the compositions of the rocks and soils across this wonderful traverse that we're doing. We're also using mini-tests and pan-cams to try to look, always be on the lookout for remarkable rocks, things that 
are different. And if they're different enough, uh, we stop and we look at them and we spend some time. So we're, we're, we're sort of the, the forward uh, reconnaissance eyes of the rover, keeping an eye out for, for anything unusual. Phil, we're just about out of time, but uh, thank you very much for giving us this uh, somewhat more in-depth look at uh, what the rovers are up to as they continue these incredibly successful missions, and, and I hope we can check in with you again. Well, you're very welcome, and I'd be very happy to talk to you again. Phil Christensen of Arizona State University is on the science team for the Mars Exploration Rovers. He is primarily responsible for the mini-tests, the miniature thermal emission spectrometers that are on both of the rovers and have been integral parts of the uh, incredible discoveries that those rovers have been making. And I'll be back with Bruce Betts and What's Up right after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Determining the instantaneous position of a spacecraft doesn't seem so hard, but how do we predict where the spacecraft is going? The position and speed of a spacecraft depends on all of the forces acting on it. The main force acting on the Voyagers is the sun's gravity and the occasional firings of attitude control rockets, which are necessary in order to keep the spaceship's radio transmitting antennas pointed at Earth. But there are lots of other forces out there in space. All of the other planets exert their own little gravitational tugs. Solar wind pressure also exerts a tiny force. So far, all of these forces felt by the Voyager spacecraft have had to do with our own solar system. But soon, Voyager 2 is predicted to encounter the heliopause, often referred to as the edge of the solar system, where our own sun is no longer the most important source of forces on the spacecraft. In fact, by tracking the position and speed of the Voyager spacecraft, we will be able to make our first direct measurements of the forces shaping the interstellar space outside our little solar system. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time again for What's Up. We are joined by Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Welcome back, Bruce. Thank you very much. Lots going on in the news, and there must be a lot that's that's up this week. What's happening? There is. We're going to talk, talk about planets and uh, also stars and comets. It's just a wealth, a cornucopia of goodies in the night sky. Look up there in the night sky shortly after sunset. Look over in the west, and you will continue to see the very, very bright Venus. Now, looking this week, you'll also see right near it another a star. That is Beta Tauri. And uh, Beta Tauri is about the same brightness right now as Mars is, which is to the upper left of Venus. And you can Mars will be roughly equidistant in between Venus, the extremely bright Venus, and the not-as-bright Saturn compared to Venus, and then Mars dimmer in between. Uh, you, you look up there and you're wondering what's going on. That's what's going on. Keep looking farther towards the east across the sky almost overhead, and you'll see very bright Jupiter. We've also got... Two comets, which are going to be challenging for city dwellers, but still visible, technically naked eye, but I think you're going to have to be out in the dark places to see them that way. We have Comet NEAT, technically C-2001 Q4 NEAT, that is up in the evening right now, and you can look kind of in the southwest. And if you look about a fist width, if you put, take your arm and stick it out and, and look at the, the width of a fist Make from sure no Sirius. one's face is in the way, but put your fist out there as far as yes. you can reach. From okay. Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, look up above that 
at sunset. And if you see a little fuzzy patch, that is probably this comet hmm. Neat. Binoculars will be very, very helpful to look for this. And if you go to our website, planetary.org slash radio, look at this week's show, and we'll give you a link to where you can find out more information about how to find not only Comet Neat, but also Comet Linear that is up in the pre-dawn skies. And it's also uh, somewhat dependent on your hemisphere as to exactly where you're looking and how good your view will be. So come check in with us. Check out comets. You mentioned these comets last week. You said that they're going to be visible for a while. Are they becoming a little bit easier to see uh, as time goes by? Yes, but it's variable and, it, and it's kind of changing. They're getting easier, some like in the case of neat in the night sky, but then not necessarily getting brighter at the same time. So it's 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 tricky. Let me mention too, for those of you uh, who aren't common comet gazers, comets, even if you get a very good view of a comet, when we had very bright comets a few years ago, typically they appear as a fuzzy patch in the sky, especially unless you're in the middle of a very, very dark area. It's just a, a fuzzy patch in the sky. They are not moving quickly, despite what cartoons show. They do not go streaking across the sky, but you can watch them move from night to night. There is a pretty big uh, variation in where they are each night in the night sky compared to, say, a planet in the night sky. Now, is this a situation where somebody with a telescope really doesn't have a big advantage over someone with that uh, pair of binoculars you mentioned? Yeah, the, the binoculars are almost your best thing for looking at these these comets because they give you a nice wide field of view while also magnifying thing and they collect a lot of a lot of light for you. And that's what you're looking for in the case of these comets, being able to see them better. And uh, again, if you're in a nice dark place, then you may get a shot at, at seeing the tails going out. What else do you have for us? Well, uh, let's go on to this week in space history. On May 14th, 1973, Skylab was launched. Nice, uh, the U.S.'s first space station. You know the thing that I thought was the coolest thing about Skylab? What was that, Matt? That jogging track that they could run around, and the, the force of them running would keep them on the inside wall of Skylab. That was cool. It was like a hamster. That was very cool, and, and provided some very nice videos as uh -huh. they wiped out, too. Oh, that was a good time. All right, on to Random Space Fact. Hey, Matt. If you weighed 100 pounds or 100 kilograms on Earth, which are you closer to? Let's skip that. Anyway, <laughs> you would weigh at the cloud tops of Jupiter 236 kilograms or 236 pounds, depending on which units you're using due to that higher gravity. Now, it'd be awful tough to stand at the cloud tops of Jupiter, so that's fairly a, a fairly pointless fact, but that's why we call them random space facts. On to the trivia contest, Matt. Last week, we asked people how many people flew to the moon twice. This would include either just going around the moon, orbiting the moon, or going to the surface of the moon. They were, uh, I'm sorry, there were three people. We mm -hmm. want to know who were they? Who were they, Matt, and how did people do? They were, and a lot of people got it right. They were James A. Lovell Jr., John Young, and Eugene Cernan. Uh, they didn't all get to walk twice uh, on the moon, but uh, but uh, they did go. They did nope. swing around the back there. No one got to walk twice. That's true. Moon. Nobody actually went down and walked but twice. John Young and Eugene Cernan did get to, to to go visit and then go back and actually walk on the surface. Level, of course, was scheduled to, but that whole pesky Apollo 13 incident kept them off the surface. Lots and lots of people got into us with the right answer this week, and the winner is Kathy Preby. Kathy Preby, almost a local, Lancaster, California, just a little ways out there in the desert, uh, the sometimes uh, home or near it of the uh, space shuttle. Uh, Kathy is going to be getting one of our Planetary Radio t-shirts. Congratulations. Yay! What do you got for us this week? Well, if you'd like to win one of the glorious Planetary Radio t-shirts, 
then you can try to answer this question. I'm going to give you an easy one this week. Try to get lots of entries, have some fun. What moon in our solar system has the thickest atmosphere? What moon in the solar system? What satellite okay. orbiting a planet has uh-huh. the thickest atmosphere? What should people do if they think they know the answer? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Follow the instructions to enter our contest and win the lovely Planetary Radio t-shirt where you'll learn that if you give us 30 minutes, we'll give you the universe. And I think we're done. We are indeed. We are done. I'd like to encourage everyone to go up, go out, look up in the night sky, and think about radio waves permeating your brain. Thank you, and good night. <laughs> That's something we can help with. This has been What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects, who joins us each week here on Planetary Radio, and I'm pretty sure he'll be back next week. You going to be back next week? I, I hope so, Matt. <laughs> I hope so, because uh, I look forward to this more than really anything else in my life. That's not true. (laughs) Thank you. Good night. We're out of time for this week. Join us again next time for another adventure in the cosmos. Thanks for listening. 